0: very little. I used to say he looked forward to going to sleep because he wanted to know what his surprise movie would be for that night. And of course, many people relate the film experience to a dream experience. And uh, as you mentioned, time, you know, film time is also uh, uh, unlike clock time in a way. Do films have its own inherent clock? What, what dictates the length of the film?
1: um what the part of it is what the germans call sitzfleisch meaning how long can you sit in one position uh, watching something and in general theater symphony music uh, film they last about two hours long sometimes more sometimes less but uh, uh, that's a general rule which has to do with uh, how long people can stand to be in one position how capacious their bladders are and other physiological things. Um, It also has to do with what your attention span is and how much you can keep afloat in your mind. Um, When something is ongoing, in a sense you have to relate everything you've seen to everything that you are now seeing or hearing, watching. to extract the most out of it, particularly if it's a well-done piece. The better it's done, the more important that is. And there's an, there's, I think there's also a limit to how much we can store in our short-term memory mm-hmm. of this work. If a movie was 10 hours long, it's just hard to remember something that happened 10 hours ago with something that's happening right now at this moment. So I, th- I think that's another determining factor. So, we're asking something strange about what the body can do because when people watch a film, they, they become hypnotized and they really don't move very much. Mm-hmm. If you put a chair over there and asked me or you or anyone, I want you to sit in that chair for two hours and just sit there, people would find it hard to do that. They'd, they'd shift around a lot. And yet, in a film, that's what we do. We generally assume one position and we just stay in that position, unless the film is not so good, and then we start to twitch. And that was a famous line from one of the uh, studio bosses of yesteryear, I think it was Harry Cohn, said, uh, my ass is my guideline. When my ass starts to itch, I know the film is no good. But basically, what he was saying is this film Is not hypnotizing me, and I start to twitch um, because I'm impatient with it. Mm -hmm. It, The the hypnotic spell either is broken or wasn't there to begin with, and so it's not ready. uh, It's not done yet, and. so there, there are many analogies with dreaming uh, and film. I think that's the reason that cuts do work. We, we talked about that earlier. Why does it work to cut from one shot to another? Because if you look at how dreams tell themselves, they do make those kind of leaps from one place to another. Um, that seem to make some sense in the dream world, but that would be very disorienting if this happened to us in real life. Um, but it happens to us all the time when we're watching films and I, I think that's one reason that the, the grammar of films evolved as quickly as it did uh, when you think how new it is as an art form. It's because it's tapping into something that we have probably many tens of millions of years of experience doing because animals dream, you know, you're, our dogs dream, we dream. Um, we dreamt long before we were human I think and um, we're just tapping into that world when we construct a film mm. one of one of the paradoxes that I don't know the answer to is that uh, uh, let's say that um, half of the films made are comedies maybe it's not quite that but let's say that and the the more laugh out loud they are the more we like them, but we don't have comedic dreams. We don't laugh at our dreams. Certainly we don't laugh 50% of the time. Usually dreams are either terrifying or they're just mysterious or ambiguous. What is this trying to tell me? Or they're strange, they're funny in funny strains, not funny haha. Mm -hmm. Why? Why that? Hmm. And you may, afterwards, you might go, huh, you know, but that's hardly a belly laugh. (laughs) So why is it? If films are dreams, why can we have funny films but not funny dreams? In okay, the funny and the ha ha sense,
0: yeah, comedies are actually very constructed from the rational mind, isn't it? And you know, it's carefully written, timed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and maybe it draws more on the intellect. Yeah, you know, it it may be
1: that the subconscious mind does not have a sense of humor. <laughs> that that humor is no, I think that may yes. be part of it. That mm. humor is the result of um, uh, the a dislocation between. Uh, expectation, logical expectation and result. And he slipped on the banana peel. We didn't expect that. And it's funny because he's wearing a top hat and yet he looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So our logical brain, which is fairly much the, the prized possession of human beings, is at work. And so that, that may be it.
0: This leads me to your next aspects question, Walter. Um, if you were a landscape, what do you think you would be? Mm.
1: Mm. I, I think uh, I, I would overstate the case and say the Grand Canyon, <laughs> um, but a landscape in which the, again, the geology, because I studied it, but in which you were able to see, like an X-ray, the structure of what's underneath, and that's fairly limited to us when we look at a fully um, vegetized landscape with forests and uh, farms and everything. It, the, what's what's underneath is hidden from us, and. In general, I try to look at the world and see what's underneath, why is that the way it is and one of the ways in landscape that we do that is by looking at the the bands of different colored rock that tell us that this is igneous rock which forced its way up through sedimentary rock which was laid down in a very peaceful geologic time. And, you know, I just enjoy looking at them. I I wouldn't want to live in them uh, because they're not uh, fully furnished, so to speak. But they're very interesting to look at and to think about.
0: Okay, this really reminds me, I don't know why, um, uh, of the English patient as you're talking about rocks and things. Um, Of course, you won two Oscars for both sound and picture editing for that film directed by Anthony Mingala. Um, that film was partly set in the desert. You also worked with Anthony on the Talented Mr. Ripley, which was set in different cities around Italy and also in New York. So my question for you is, when is it important for sound to be literal in a scene, and when is it important not to be?
1: I, I think um, it, it is almost always important for some element of the sound not to be literal. And sometimes that's forced upon us by circumstance, because when somebody hits somebody else in the head, we don't want to really hit somebody else in the head. So we make a sound that is a metaphor for that experience of how it feels. Um, and sometimes you want to be very abstract in, in your use of sound, very metaphorical, because this presents a paradox to the mind of the audience. Why am I looking at this and hearing that? And it's maybe not perceived consciously as a paradox, but some part of the brain does hear this as a paradox. And the mind is constantly trying to make sense of contradictory information. When it does make sense of contradictory contradictory information, the result is a construction inside the brain. It's something that we make out of information Uh, but it has a dimensionality to it that is otherwise lacking so that in the world when we walk around we see two flat images from our left and right eyes. There is no depth uh, in a stereoscopic sense in either of those images. So there's a slight difference between what we're seeing with each eye and this difference is hand it over to the brain as if to say, you make sense of it and the brain does most of the time and it aligns those two things and it says, the reason why I'm seeing this is that the thermos bottle is further away than the pair of glasses and it presents this to us as a three dimensional world and we do this uh, very frequently in, in film and we can push it actually quite hard and the audience will accept it. The example I, I use frequently for this is the the sound of the screeching elevated train in The Godfather just before Solazzo is killed. Michael has a gun in his pocket and he's sitting at the table and he's coming up with the right the, the moment to kill this guy and McCluskey, and uh, the scene is just a simple restaurant scene between three people talking in normal conversational terms. What you're hearing is an increasingly loud elevated train This takes place in the Bronx where these trains uh, are everywhere. And from having been in the background, it gets louder and louder and louder and more screechy until finally it reaches what you might say is the breaking point. And it's at that point that Michael stands up and pulls the gun out and shoots. And at that moment, the sound suddenly disappears, which is a clue that it was not a real sound, that it was a metaphorical sound. And it's interpreted by the audience most of the time. They're not even aware of it, really, as a separate thing. It gets interpreted as... Al Pacino's performance or Michael's dilemma. In a sense, that sound is the anguish of the neurons that are trying to come to terms with this decision, which is life-changing. And then when he makes the decision, the sound disappears.
0: So, how important is silence in the film and how do you convey it? Do you need to convey silence with sound, in fact, in a movie?
1: It can exist, silence can exist in absolute terms. The, the end of Godfather 2, uh, the last shot of Godfather 2, is absolutely silent. Um, what we have done uh, this is Michael sitting alone by the lakefront uh, after Kay has left his life and he's, he's alone, very powerful, at maximum power but maximum aloneness and the shot is moving in on him slowly and as the shot moves in on him we, the mixers, are taking out all of the sounds one by one uh, until at the end in the last five seconds or so there is nothing. There's not any atmosphere or wind or even noise of, of the soundtrack. It's just silence which is getting at a state of being in him, an emptiness. Um, so you, you can get there, you have to be careful about how you get there. If, if we got there suddenly, people would think the soundtrack broke. Mm. So we have to follow a curve of awareness of the audience and, and have a good intuition about how steep that curve is and modify our skis, so to speak, uh, to follow that slope fairly exactly. But it, sound, silence is an extremely powerful effect and film is really the only art form that can use silence in a creative way. There are certain art forms that, like painting, that have no sound in them at all. They are just visual elements. Um, my, my father believed that the painting should evoke a sound, um, but there is no literal sound along with the painting. Um, Obviously music has silence in it, but you can't have that silence for very long. If, if the orchestra played and then stopped and then just sat there for two minutes, the audience would get very restless or they would think, have I come to a John Cage concert? Because <laughs> Cage pushed against that uh, envelope firmly. Same with theater. Um, Samuel Beckett can play with silence, uh, but he's one of the few playwrights to be able to do that. Usually, if people stop talking for a long period of time, the audience begins to get restless because they, they can't see deeply into the eyes of the audience, of the actors, so they can't really tell at a deep level what the, aud- the actors are thinking. Um, but film can do that. Because you, are, you can be in silence and yet still sustain the audience's interest because they have this these eyes to look at. Um,
0: and in fact, you can probably quieten down the entire auditorium. Yeah, you control it right. well. Yeah. There's, you- a, there's a wonderful
1: line from Bela Balash, who was a, a Hungarian film theorist in the early part of the 20th century, who said... In silence, things look at us with wide open eyes. So here here he's talking about even objects having eyes in a sense, that an object presented in the right way in silence will somehow seem to stare back at the audience Mm -hmm. and that we can use that effect as well.
0: You mentioned your father who was a a very accomplished um, painter, since you both studied the uh, history of art and being his son, you have a very keen appreciation of aesthetics. Is it the responsibility of the filmmaker to entertain an audience's aesthetic sense, do you think?
1: Yes, I I think so, although that can be very subtle. Um, I just the other day looked at uh, Elena, the Russian film that came out five years ago, um, which is a domestic drama. Um, set in two apartments, the the apartment of uh, the couple who are the main focus of the story, and then the apartment of the wife's son by another marriage. And you you travel occasionally from one to the other in a taxi or a train, but most of the action happens in these apartments. And so it's it's on the one hand from a a um, level of um, uh, visual excitement like uh, Star Wars or something, it, it's negligible because it's just people's apartment but it's very carefully considered what the, how the composition is and how people move in those compositions so it's uh, it's like being served a meal of something that seems to be very simple but it's been done in such a refined way that you extract more taste out of it it's, it's not the hammer blow of fat, sugar, and uh, salt that fast food gives you, um, but it's uh, more better for you, and uh, and teaches your palate something. So, yes, I, I think it's important. Um, and you know we tend to focus on the human face, and if the faces are interesting, that's enough for us sometimes, uh, because. Of, our, of who we are and what our focus is. My Dinner with André um, is a movie of uh, a dinner with André, with Wallachon and André. Um, is it visually a uh, smack in the pusser? No, it's just two people talking at a restaurant. But it's fascinating because of what they're saying, but also the expressions on the people's faces. So, you you, you know, uh, it it keeps us entertained. Maybe not a wide audience entertained, um, but as Lincoln, as Abraham Lincoln said, if you're the kind of, if you like these sort of things, then this is the sort of thing that you'll like.
0: Yes, indeed. I remember at the end of Waiting for Guffman when he ends up selling uh, like movie memorabilia in his shop, and amongst them were uh, uh, My Dinner with Andre action figures. Right. And a friend of mine has got them because he was working with Wally Shawn. I am uh-huh. so-
1: Fantastic. Jealous.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to go back to your, your film, Return to Us, which you directed and co-wrote, because that was also beautifully designed and, and um, incredibly thoughtfully designed, but you didn't edit it yourself. What was the reason?
1: No, I, I generally believe that uh, the, um, the triangulation afforded by another point of view is, is important. At every stage in a film's uh, creation and at the in the editing as well, I know very talented filmmakers who edit their own films. The Cohen brothers uh, immediately spring to mind, although they credit um, uh, Mr. James. Um, his name, first name, will occur to me in a second. Um, but they they edit themselves, and it's it's fine. Um, So it's a a matter of predisposition.
0: The number three seems to be very um, important um, in work and in life and in spirituality, I guess. Uh, But I wanted you to talk to one interesting phenomenon, which is to do with uh, dubbing. Uh, Once I think you mentioned that if you have one set of footsteps, you have to be accurate. If you have two sets of footsteps, you have to be accurate. But once it goes into three, you right. can basically more or less do anything. Why is that? Well, it's <laughs>
1: this tendency, and I call this my, a law of two and a half, that, that something happens somewhere between two and three, which is reflected in everything from the concept, the religious concept of the Trinity to the Chinese ide- ideogram for forest which is three trees. It's not four trees, it's not ten trees, it's not two trees either, it's three because there's something about not only the human mind but the animal mind that when there are three of something it lumps them together into a new concept. There's an emergent concept that that comes about at when you cross from duality into Trinity. Um, If you uh, have, uh, there there are certain birds um, who who may lay five eggs in their nest. If you creep in and and while they're gone, you take one of the eggs, they come back and they're not upset. If you come back and take another one of their eggs, they're not upset. If you come back and take the next egg and leave them only two eggs, they are upset. Because when they look at their nest, they see many eggs, meaning more than three or more. When that's reduced to duality, that's when they realize, I no longer have many eggs. There's a book by George Gamow on physics called One, Two, Three, Infinity, about the tendency of human primitive tribes to count in similar form. So I, I think all of us do that at, at a basic intuitive level. If you throw coins on a table uh, and ask, how many coins are there? If you throw five coins, it'll take a moment for somebody to answer. If you throw 10 coins, it'll take quite a long time. If you throw three coins, they'll get it right away. Mm-hmm. If you throw two coins, they get it right away. Obviously one coin, they get it right away. So again, Something is similar in our brain to the brain of birds mm. when it comes to counting um, uh, objects. Mm.
0: Um, animation has had a great resurgence in recent years. Um, have you worked within this genre at all? I,
1: I have. Mm. I directed an animated film a couple of years ago, which was an episode of the series Clone Wars. Uh, which was a Lucasfilm production. Um, I was at a uh, indeterminate point in my schedule; nothing was looming, and George Lucas uh, approached and said, "Why don't you direct one of these episodes? It only takes 12 weeks, and it might be fun." And he was interested in getting people in who did not have experience in animation because he wanted to infuse the filmmaking with the sensibility of live-action shooting. It's a big collaborative art. I I didn't do um, anything other than the most elementary blocking of animation. Then I had a team of four animators working with me who would then uh, flesh that out in more detail. And then this was sent in turn to animation studios in the Far East. I think this one went to Singapore where an army of people work for six months doing all of the detailed animation. Crazy.
0: How important do you think it is for artists to to remain childlike?
1: Uh, Childlike, another word for childlike is uh, neoteny or neotenic, that may be a word we just invented right now. But neoteny is a strategy of evolution uh, that when a species gets stuck in a evolutionary branch that is a dead end and no more movement is possible, uh, the the strategy is to um, back up in a sense and to take the life form as it evolves from the egg or whatever it happens to be, to take a juvenile form of the life form and extend that juvenility uh, to give it the mixed blessing of of sexual activity even though it's still juvenile. Um, And that's how you can um, sort of pull yourself out of the mud, so to speak, and change course and go off in another direction. Artists are constantly faced with that dilemma uh, in artistic sense, that we're constantly exploring the landscape just like evolution is exploring the, the evolutionary landscape. And like evolution, we frequently find ourselves at dead ends and um, either we content uh, ourselves with that dead end and just kind of burrow down and sit there or we, we back up and in a sense become more childlike and explore options that are available to us as children or as a childish way of thinking of the world and then move on. Um, uh, there's a great line from a physicist whose name escapes me at the moment, but he said, the, the great questions are the questions that children answer and getting no answer stop asking. So artists are really the children in a sense, who try to ask the questions that we have stopped answering. Oh,
0: very good. Um, In fact, once, um, I'm reading a quote from uh, the excellent book by Michael Ondaatje, The Conversations, which was uh, a book of interviews with you. Um, And you said that editing is a matter of orchestration, mysterious when it needs to be mysterious and understandable when it needs to be understandable. So does this relate to the eternal human spirit of both seeking understanding and also wanting certain things to remain mysterious and yeah, else,
1: Yes, I, I think so. It, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I think all art forms are, uh, especially those that use time as, a, as an element, are navigating this line, uh, this twilight zone between self-evidence and surprise. If, if the work you're doing is constantly surprising, but never clear, it becomes chaotic mm. and therefore boring quickly because, okay, he, he emerged out of that silk hat, what next? Anything is possible and therefore nothing is possible, really. On the other hand, if everything is predictable, if everything is self-evident, of course, of course, then we're not surprised. And so we have another kind of boring. Um, So um, in an ideal sense, I think uh, art, um, music, uh, film, theater, again, thing, dance, things that have a time component to them um, need to uh, be a sustained deja vu experience where you don't really know what's happening next When it happens, you think, "Oh, of course!" Then that happened, Mm. and uh, so it again. You are surprised, but at the same time, it is self-evident that what what happens—what happens—does not seem arbitrary.
0: You are a translator, Walter, of um, Curzio Malaparte's um, novels, and you—am I right to think that he wrote in prose? But when you... Translated, you translated into poetry. Is that a way of um, maintaining mystery, or or is it dictated by other considerations?
1: He he did write poetry. I I have not. He didn't write a lot of poetry, and I have not translated his poems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was as much a surprise to anyone what happened uh, in the process of translating his. Uh, work, very little of which has been translated into English. And um, I, I was using my undergraduate education in Italian and my experiences uh, in Italy uh, uh, to um, translate uh, some of this work. Um, and um, it almost spontaneously started to break itself up rather than being blocks of prose, it began to be, have this raggedness on the page, like free verse. And I'm not a big aficionado of poetry. I, I find it hard uh, frequently. The, the, I have a few favorite poets, uh, Rilke, and uh, um, is, is, is a main one. Um, so, uh, but not, not a lot.
0: Um, had you written poetry before you started No, no, I never,
1: never wrote it, and I don't even l- like reading it very much. Um, um, so I, I thought, well, this is interesting. I will let this happen because maybe I will learn something. And I, I think, in retrospect, it had two aspects to it. One of them was um, his. His imagery is and and description is very rich and dense, mm. and he doesn't break things into paragraphs. Uh, the, the blocks of text are solid blocks. I mean, he he, he has paragraphs, but not frequently, mm. compared to how we write today. Mostly, he was he was active really from the 1920s to the late 1950s as a writer. Um, and he was writing in Italian, which has a musicality to it that in a sense is, is the relief of the block of text. English doesn't have that musicality, so breaking it up on the page was a way of imposing an English version of musicality, a rhythm into it. Mm-hmm. I learned something though in the process of doing that, uh, which I, I, I was hoping I would learn something and, and what I learned Um, was, first of all, that the state of mind of a translator is very similar to the state of mind of a film editor and that in a sense film editing is a kind of translation. Um, What we're translating though is we're translating from the language of text, which is the screenplay, to the language of images and sounds in time and as every language has efficiencies that are different from every other language so Italian is more efficient at certain things, English is more efficient at certain other things and the translator is trying to navigate those efficiencies and as with film um, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words but at the same time there are places where a word is worth a thousand pictures And so, do we follow the script exactly, or do we break away from it because this is really very good and gets the idea across with a single glance? You understand she loves him because of the way she looks in this shot, and not the other shot, but this particular shot. And therefore, the dialogue becomes redundant, so we can cut that dialogue out, Um, and so we're, again. navigating that uh, twilight zone between efficiencies. And the other thing that impressed itself upon me was that the, in free verse, the end of each line, the question is, where do you break each line? Why do you decide to break the line here rather than here? On the one hand, it has a lot to do with the inner architecture of the line, the rhythms of the ideas and words and thoughts and you want to break it at the right point, given the rhythm of that line. And here the analogy with a shot is very close, that we we sustain a shot in film depending upon the internal rhythm of the shot visually and the ideas that are being expressed. And when those rhythms and ideas have reached a level of maturity, that's when we cut to something else. But at the same time, in free verse, you expose the last word of the line to the ultraviolet uh, effect of the page. The blankness of the rest of the page is a way of secretly underlining that word, of giving it a significance that it doesn't have if it's buried within the prose. And so you choose not only the rhythm of the line, but what word are we going to end on because that word is significant and a good poem one way of looking at a good poem is to look at only the last word of every line. And frequently, if you just read those, you would know a lot about what that poem is about on many levels. Similarly, when we cut from one shot to another, that moment is, is a, uh, an, a, a startling moment where the the brain of the audience is shocked. What happened? That What I was looking at is suddenly gone. And the nature of the way the human mind works is that whatever image there was at that moment when it was taken away is preserved in a kind of flashbulb moment in the brain, similarly to the way the word at the end of the line of the poem is preserved mm. with this flashbulb effect. And so you as an editor want not only to cut at the moment of great greatest Uh, tension uh, and resolution according to the rhythm of the internal rhythms of the shot, but also what image are we going to leave the audience with when we cut to the next shot? Ideally, that image should be as iconic as possible because it's out of the alphabet of those iconic images that the audience is going to gain a deeper understanding of the film that they're looking at. It's a reason that I don't temperamentally like particularly cutting on what is called matching action, Mm -hmm. which is where somebody uh, gets up from a chair and at the moment of getting up, you cut to the wider shot and that action is completed Mm -hmm. in the wider shot. Mm -hmm. This was a early film grammar that evolved in the 19-teens and 20s because people were nervous, filmmakers were nervous about this idea of cutting from one shot to another Mm -hmm. and they thought that this sort of blowed a little smoke across the shot. And even in some films, they would do a very quick dissolve from one shot to the other, like a four-frame dissolve mm-hmm. to soften the blow, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But what cutting on action does, though, is remove that iconic flashbulb effect and gives that moment of the cut a, a, a bit of a, a confusing stutter to it that is correct under some, some circumstances, but I don't rely on it
0: um, anywhere
1: near uh a large percentage of the time
0: mm-hmm. um I'm going to ask you your third aspects question now. If you were a season, what would you be, Walter? Hmm.
1: I think this season fall mm-hmm. um, and again, I don't i i i it's harder for me to analyze uh that. Um, you you are forced in the fall to confront a certain mortality. Um, the leaves are falling and the colors are different. And uh, on the other hand, it's also a, there's a coziness to it um, that is uh, heartening. Um, and the harvest is in. Um, whatever you have done in the year is now gathered and you are, looking at it, so to speak, um, and every art form has a season to it, uh, the, the spring of initial creation, the summer of growing, and then the harvest, uh, the fall harvest, uh, and so that's, uh, that's what I would think for me.
0: Beautifully analyzed, actually. <laughs> um, I hear you once received a fortune cookie which said that you had a quiet and unobtrusive nature. Um, by this I interpret that you're a keen observer of life, the universe and everything. Is it important for an editor to remain emotionally detached from the material he's working with?
1: No, uh, no, I don't think so. I think you have to become emotionally attached to it. Not to the extent of possessiveness, because that's, that creates all kinds of problems. And I, uh, I personally don't like going on the set a lot when a film is being shot because that allows me to see around the corner of the frame, so to speak. And I know what that set smelled like. When I see it in dailies, I can, oh, that was tuna fish salad day. <laughs> and uh, I know maybe people were angry with each other that day, even though supposedly everything on screen was supposed to be happy. Um, or it was very cold and it was supposed to be hot, but it was cold. Um, so I, I like to limit myself to only knowing what the camera sees because that's as close as I'll ever get to being the eyes of the audience who, in an ideal sense, don't know about tuna fish and arguments and any of these other things. Um, because it affects how you deal with the material in some subtle way that I'd rather not know about. So that's not exactly emotional attachment, but it's a it's a kind of attachment that I where I try to, I do try to distance myself from the material because the editor is one of the only people who works on the film at that level at such an intimate level who can distance from the actual, sometimes slightly bloody practicalities of shooting. Um, you uh, that's certainly not true of the director or the cinematographer or the producer or the actors or the production designers or the customers, they they know all of the sweat and blood that goes into it. And um, it, it, there needs to be at least one person who can vouch for the other, which is uh, all I know is what I see on the screen. And either you don't like this shot because that's the day you had the argument. It's really a very good shot mm-hmm. in the right place. Or you're, you've fallen in love with this shot because of something, dot, dot, dot. Yes. It, it, it doesn't, the emotional attachment that you, whoever it is, have to the shot. I don't think is, would not be shared by the audience. It's particular to how this shot was created.
0: Mm. So in a way, do you feel like you have to approach each day with a very kind of like, I'm not sure if my choice of words are right, but like a cleansed and open spirit? Um, and if so, do you have any kind of rituals you go through at the beginning of each day before you approach the, the desk as it were?
1: Yeah, I, I, my image uh, for the state of mind is a sort of Zen koan, which is open closeness, mm. or closed openness. Um, you, you have to be open and to everything that is around you. On the other hand, you also have to have an attitude. If you're pushed around by every slight breeze, then nothing will coherent will ever get done. On the other hand, if you're close to what's happening in front of you, then the film, or whatever it is, uh, will not be as good as it could be.
0: The music score, this is my last question, um, specific to film editing. It's clearly an important aspect in any film. What in your opinion constitutes a successful score?
1: Well, um, the there there's a couple of ways of looking at that. The the strictly um, commercial way of looking at it is: Do people hum the melodies when they come out of the theater, and will they buy the the album of this music? And does the music, in some way, enhance the emotional? effect of the film in a way that nothing else could. Um, having said that though, uh, my, my personal preference is uh, to avoid using music as the emotional key to every moment in the film. In other words, a kind of guide track to the emotion of the film so that no moment of the film is without music and we are hearing the music all the time and it's telling us what we should be feeling, I, I, don't, like, I don't gravitate toward that style of composition. And I, I think the danger of that is very similar to the danger of athletes using steroids. It undoubtedly has an effect, um, but in the long term for the health of the sport and for the health of the individual taking the steroids, you should not use this stuff. The body produces its own steroids naturally, you want to get to a place where the right amount of steroids made by you are being produced. So the same thing with, with music, that in a sense the music for the film is, should be the music that the film itself produces. What I mean by that is uh, the, the great value for me about music is that <clears throat> it can coalesce emotions Bring them uh, to earth in a sense to allow the audience to metabolize emotions that are sometimes ambiguous and then prepare the audience for the next round of whatever it, whatever it is. Um, so, you for uh, we talked about it earlier, but that moment of uh, where Michael kills Salazzo, there is no music in that scene, and another director would have put music in that scene, something tense. Mm-hmm. Um, we chose to add a sound effect that made you tense, but not music. Um, and then the, the aftermath of that scene though has very big music. It's almost operatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, at, at a certain point, that scene was the end of the film before an intermission. So the film was three hours long and there was supposed to be as originally conceived an intermission at that point and for various reasons uh, we decided not to do that. But that music was intermission music, but it's big music. But basically it, it helps the audience to resolve the ambiguity of what just happened because Michael is the hero of the film. He has emerged as the brother that we are really concentrating on, the four brothers. But he's also the brother who very early on in the film says to Kay, his girlfriend, about the mafia, this is not me, I'm not, I'm not part of this, I'm different than the rest of them. Um, so it's a dream he has, and that in fact we learn his father has, uh, that he not be part of the family. So here he is not only killing two people at point blank range, but enmeshing himself in the very intestines of mafia business mm. and ruining his life in a sense. He's killing the dream that he said at the beginning of the film. And that's a very ambiguous thing for a character to do, to, to express a dream. I have a dream and then to kill it. Mm. Generally, that person now we have no sympathy for. Mm-hmm. So why do we continue to have sympathy for Michael? Well, it has a lot to do with Al Pacino's acting and his casting and the inherent drama of his situation. We want to find out what happens. Um, But it also has to do with the music that comes in there. And the music basically says, don't worry folks, this is opera. Um, That we we should take this act not as the cold-blooded thirstiness of a kid murdering people at point blank range, Um, but as a a character in an opera, which is to say a larger sphere. We're looking at this from a vantage point that is different than the sort of ground-level vantage point of an ordinary crime story, Um, that something elemental is being worked out here and stick with us because you will be entertained by that, but the, the music essentially takes a position. Uh, it helps the audience to resolve an ambiguity of what just happened yes. and bring them, in a sense, back to neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a, a step up um, in intensity, but they're ready now for the next emotion, whatever that is. It
0: also seems to me that you have to judiciously, at moments, draw the audience towards you to, as assume- you. Said, uh, become co-creators of the film. I think in one interview you used that word, which I thought right. was such a good word. And at, and then at other times they need to be fed and nourished and calmed. And and between these two things, you're yeah. making them lean forward and right. then lean back.
1: Yeah, no, that's, it's it's. Uh, I have an image for that, um, which is uh, an anemone and how an anemone works, where at certain points all of the the arms or whatever they are open up and now it's feeding on the environment. And then when it has enough stuff stuck to the arms, they close down and now they digest this stuff. And so the attention of the audience, both emotionally and logically, which are different things, are anemones that sometimes open up together and sometimes open up at different times. Um, But you have to also acknowledge that there are times when when the anemone is closed and the audience is digesting what you gave them and new information is not really gonna be taken in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other times when it opens up and sometimes even accidental information that you never intended them to take seriously, they will um, swallow and uh, you get into discussions. Well, no, he was guilty. What, why do you think he was guilty? Well, he was wearing a t-shirt Oh my God, you thought a t-shirt meant he was guilty? (laughs) But for that particular person, somehow their anemone was open and trying to understand. And for this particular person, wearing a t-shirt in this circumstance meant that person is guilty. And then they close and no matter what you tell them subsequently, that man is guilty. And so you have to, as filmmakers, have an intuition about this pulse, Mm -hmm. this sort of peristaltic pulse of the audience's attention Mm -hmm. and emotion.
0: Mm. Great, um, do you have a favourite score? I mean you've worked with so many great scores, I mean The Godfather of course is one that we all know, The English Patient has fantastic score, um, m- many many, do you, do, you, do you have one that you particularly love? Mm. Or have you become fed up <laughs> with all of them, listening to them
1: I like them very much. Um, um, again, all very different. Uh, I mean, I, I very much like the the English the score for the English patients. Um,
0: By Gabrielle Yared. Gabrielle Yared.
1: Um, and um, the score for Godfather is is classic, both for itself and then also how it is used in this peristaltic way. Uh, it, it's a, if you analyze where the music is used in the Godfather, it's it's a very good instruction for the sort of things I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. The the irony is that the studio wanted to get rid of that music. They hated it um, and wanted Henry Mancini to come in and write a whole new hard-hitting crime type uh, score and to get rid of this sort of woozy romantic nature of it. Luckily, through Francis's uh, table-thumping uh, persistence uh, they uh, the studio eventually consented and oh,
0: thank God. We,
1: we were spared <laughs> we, we were given Nina Rota's music
0: um, I interviewed the composer Gary Yershon recently who said that he rarely listens to music for pleasure when you're not working do you watch movies for pleasure is it or is it always related
1: to work? I'm not a big movie goer. Mm-hmm. I, there are times, and, you know, I, I've seen two films in the last week, which is a lot for me, <laughs> uh, but I can go months without watching a film, either in the theaters or on television, be, because for the same reason I think that Gary does. I'm, I'm, I'm so full of it when I'm working on a film that it... Uh, it's almost too much for me and everyone is different. And I know people, people like Marty Scorsese look at films all the time and they are nourished by that constant um, uh, feeding of something that clearly needs to be fed for them. And for me, it, it's different. Um, the other two scores, I, I was just thinking, uh, very different as I, I love the score for Return to Oz by David Shire, which is a wonderful uh, evocation of fantasy and yet it's anchored quite strongly in the, the music of turn of the 20th century America. Um, so it, it manages to do something very complicated in a very simple way, which is uh, the essence of style. And uh, David Shire's other music for the conversation, which is uh, just a piano. Um, <clears throat> and a, at times a prepared piano that, that is using that music to trigger certain things in a synthesizer. So there's a piano edging into the electronic, mm-hmm. depending on what the content of the scene is. But that's another classic example of, I think, of where, how judiciously to use music and how to use music that is very perfectly proportioned to the, what we were talking about earlier as the, the chamber music aspect of that film. Mm-hmm. You know that that there are very few instruments in that film, compared to something like The Godfather or Apocalypse Now or The English Patient or any of these other much broader canvases. This is very spare, and in a in a sense, it's an American version of uh, Elena, the Russian film that uh, I was looking at a couple of days ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so now, going away from films. Did you bring us something that you love, which has nothing to do with your work? So it can't be a photon or a pot of honey or something. What did you bring? I did.
1: I I brought you um, the solar system. And This is not going to be a discussion of Bode's Law, but uh, here it is. It's the solar system.
0: (laughs) It's a 2P coin. Right. With... Her Majesty the Queen. Right, head. and it's
1: a newly minted two p coin.
0: Yes, yeah, very
1: shiny. Very shiny. Um, but if, if as a thought experiment, you uh, can believe that this in fact is the solar system, and that the outer circumference of this two pence coin is the outer orbit of, let's say, Pluto. Um, Then the question that I ask myself, and I find a great deal of uh, amusement and interest in contemplating is, if this is the solar system, and we say are two gods looking down at this solar system, we know also that this is a flattened disk in a much larger flattened disk, which is the Milky Way galaxy. So the question, and you have to imagine this because um, you're, you're just listening to sound at the moment, but if this is the solar system, how big is the Milky Way galaxy that surrounds this object? Mm. And I put that to you oh. um, um, to it, use your gut imagination to imagine the, this island universe of the galaxy and the, the guttier you make your answer, the better. Don't worry about uh, trying to calculate it. Just If this is the solar system, how big is the Milky Way galaxy, of which this is a small part?
0: Uh, the size of Britain?
1: The size of? Britain. Britain. That's a good answer. Um, in, in a sense, it's better than some answers of physicists whom I have talked to, who say uh, it's as big as this room. In fact, it is very big. Um, but it's as not only as big as Britain. It's as big as combined Britain, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Poland, Sweden, and Norway. So basically, as big as Western Europe, if you. Made Western Europe into a galaxy shaped tectonics right and with plate tectonics. <laughs> you just swirled Western Europe into a circle. This coin somewhere lost in by the. If you imagine this coin lying by the side of the road somewhere in Switzerland, mm-hmm. then you have some sense of what the solar system is lost within our galaxy. Let alone the rest of the universe, which is composed of. What we now think of as hundreds of billions, if not many, many uh, more uh, galaxies, just like the Milky Way. So this this uh, whenever I put my hand into my pocket and pull out a coin, I uh, have a little. I, I feel something in touch with um, our position in the the universe at large, because there's the solar system, and here, by implication, is the rest of the universe.
0: Well, the solar system is very small in comparison to you, so that must be a good thing. Right. I, I think. <laughs> Your consciousness is much bigger than the solar system, clearly.
1: I mean, the other thing uh, to wonder about is if, again, we were two large gods looking at the solar system, and there on the Earth, which is an inconceivably small dot on this coin, um, if the animals meaning humans, on that dot, invented a way of moving matter through space at the speed of light, which we think is impossible, but let's say they did it, and we we would say, well, look at that, those cute little things, they've actually done it, amazing, amazing, amazing. Okay, let's, uh, let's come back tomorrow at the same time and see how they're doing if we came back tomorrow, uh, at the same time, that spaceship would have gotten to there. So, and I'm holding my finger basically a finger's breadth uh, away from the uh, dot. So basically it would have traveled maybe two inches in the course of a day, traveling at the speed of light. So the idea that we are going to go zipping around the galaxy in our scooters, um, traveling at the speed of light and that will solve everything. If you think, hmm, the galaxy is as big as Western Europe and I'm traveling at the speed of light, I'm traveling two inches a day. Um, that is quite a challenge uh, for and we're us. we're
0: not even talking about the multiverse. And we're not
1: <laughs> even talking about the multiverse, indeed. So either it's impossible or we're going to figure out something else, some wormhole way of transitioning between spaces in the universe or between one universe and the next.
0: Does this make you feel good, Walter? Uh, y- yes,
1: I guess in a certain level, it does.
0: <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you so much um, for coming in today. Well, and thank you. And many it's, congratulations it's, to you. you and Aggie and uh, yes. your daughter Beatrice on your new grandson. And uh, her husband Santi, don't, and for, don't hus- forget. And her husband Santi, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, have a wonderful Christmas all together. Thank you so much. Thank you.